Welcome to Episode 7 of The History Files. I'm Gordon Fry, and today, sitting in yet again for Dylan Honnold, is our producer, Nancy Fry. So, not to belabor anything, let's just jump right in with uh, current events. This is from Brecky Thomason of Geek Days at the Psycon Network, uh, our man in Sweden. He uh, posted this on his Facebook page yesterday, which is March 29th, 2015. Interesting observation on uh, the current state of affairs in Canada and where they might be headed in the near, not-too-distant future. And I'm just going to read some excerpts from his post because it's, it says what it needs to say. He says, At the moment, Canada is facing two massive problems. Firstly, the eastern parts are all suffering from demographic decline. Too few young people to keep the financial stability of the pension system operational, and they're going to be running into very difficult straits as more of the baby boomers continue to retire. The average age of an immigrant to Canada is 32, which is not doing very much to help their demographic decline. Second problem is Quebec. They've wanted independence for a long time, but have basically been bribed by Ontario to stay in the Union. Unfortunately, however, Ontario is running out of money, see above. This means we'll either have to see Ontario stop giving them bribes to stay in the nation, or Quebec will up and leave. Enter Alberta, one of the strongest parts of Canada, with a young population and a booming technology sector. They've got natural gas and are part of the Canadian Grain Belt. As soon as Ontario can't pay for Quebec, Alberta might be asked to step in. They'll quickly realize that they have three options. Pay money and be poorer, declare independence from Canada, or three, declare independence from Canada and apply for statehood in the United States. The United States would love this. Alberta would immediately become the richest state in the Union, would supply great tax money into the nation, and the United States would be able to begin selling the natural gas and oil that once belonged to Canada back to Canada. If this were to happen, British Columbia would be locked away from the rest of Canada. Sure, we've got the northern provinces linking them back to Saskatchewan and Manitoba, but there's hardly any infrastructure up there worth the name, so British Columbia would seriously consider doing the same and joining the United States as a state of their own. Suddenly, in one fell swoop, the United States would suddenly have 52 states, and cities like Vancouver, Edmonton, and Calgary would be American. He goes on for a bit more. So, is this crazy talk, or could it really happen? Well, one thing I want to mention uh, as far as demographics go is Japan's having exactly the same problem. Uh, the Japanese, the average age of, in Japan is like mid-40s or something. And it's just, uh, you know, they've got an aging population that is fully expecting to take full advantage of the pensions that they've been promised for the last 30, 40 years. Uh, and, and the younger population is just... A, not interested, and B, not able to support them. So, thirdly, Japan 
doesn't have any interest in allowing immigration. I really think that it's demographics that are encouraging the um, governments around the, the northern hemisphere to encourage immigration from the southern hemisphere uh, and from third world countries because they realize that demographics are not in their favor. Your average European family has one point something children. Japanese have one point something children. The United States has one point something children. Canada is just as bad, if not worse. So I think that this is a major issue uh, that is going to have huge cultural ramifications, too, because these new immigrants aren't simply going to replace the younger workers. They're going to replace them in a lot of different ways, which we have absolutely zero concept of how that's going to happen. We can make lots of, you know, ideas, get lots of ideas, but nobody knows what's going to happen. As far as Canada itself goes, I think that's a very real possibility. Uh, Quebec has for generations squawked about the Anglophones and how horribly they're treated and how the French language that they speak, which is somewhat different from metropolitan France, uh, is you know, being um, disrespected and whatnot. And the response of your average Anglophone Canada is tough. Uh, likewise, the response of your average First Nations person is tough. We've had to suck it up. You get to suck it up, too. The There was a what they call the Meech Lake Accord that Prime Minister Mulroney, I believe it was, put together patched together with the Quebecois to recognize their their special unique culture. And the First Nations torpedoed that because they said, wait a minute, we've got unique cultures too. I don't see you recognizing them. So no, you don't get to. The biggest problem Quebec has is if they choose to go for independence is the First Nations that are in northern Quebec have said, you go independent from Canada, we'll go independent from you, and the land they live on controls all the hydroelectric power which supplies electricity for Quebec and big chunks of Ontario, too. So it's a huge mess. A huge mess. So, it's, so it's more complicated underneath than even at face value. Oh, yeah. And furthermore, you have provinces like British Columbia, which have for years as well said, well, if Quebec leaves, so will we. The Americans will be happy to take us, which is true because then we'd have a straight corridor clear to Alaska between Washington and Alaska. So you got to, in some ways, feel sorry for some of the leadership in Ottawa because they're probably scratching their heads and a whole lot of other things trying to figure out how we're going to deal with this because it's an unsolvable problem. It puts me in mind of the recent bid by Scotland to go for independence, and that didn't happen. So I'm thinking, I'm wondering if a lot of people are saying, oh, well, you know, Quebec talks tough, but they'll never do it, and, and, or it'll never pass. It's too, it's too extreme. It's too radical, and, which to me smacks of being short-sighted and, and being firmly in the camp of people who don't read history. Well, I think also, though, that there's, again, much more to it. I think the referendum in Scotland was voted against mostly by pensioners who were afraid they were going to lose money that literally 
mostly most of it comes out of England. Uh, Scots nationalists will probably try to crucify me for saying this, but Scotland is basically supported by England right now. They were hoping that they would get the the uh, oil fields on the North Sea, but with the drop in price of oil, that certainly wasn't going to happen. So, in that regard, I think it was the pensioners worrying about their money that caused Scotland not to vote for independence. And that's exactly, I think, what's happening in Quebec, is you get the pensioners who are saying, uh, I'd kind of like to get my government pension, and if we go independent, Quebec can't afford it. Quebec has been sort of a social, uh, oh, well, social-slash-socialist vacuum for the rest of Canada, again, for a couple of generations. Um, they can't afford independence at their level of lifestyle right now. Hmm. This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. So for our media segment today, I went to the, our DVD shelf, and the one that caught my eye was The Alamo. This is the 2004 Alamo that was put together by Disney. Basically, it's the last one that was done last, and it was probably the last big movie shot in this country that involved actual horse cavalry. Uh, a lot of the movies that use horse cavalry are being shot overseas these days. They don't do that. So as a consequence, it was the last horse movie that Mr. Fry here went and worked on. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's actually really, really good. I'm, it's uh, directed by John Lee Hancock, who also recently directed The Blind Side, Snow White and the Huntsman, and Saving Mr. Banks. And it stars... Uh, Dennis Quaid, Billy Bob Thornton, Jason Patrick, and Patrick Wilson. Um, it's um, it's I really I really really liked it, and I I highly recommend it as a, a glimpse at a really key moment in American history. I like it too. It was a lot of fun to work on, and they took extraordinary pains to get everything right. Their material culture was darn near perfect. Um, I was lucky enough to be well acquainted with not only one of the armorers, a fellow by the name of Taylor Anderson, who I'll give a plug for too. He's a he's now a quite renowned author in science fiction fantasy with his series called The Destroyer Men, the first one being Into the Storm. I highly recommend him. It's kind of fun. And as another aside, he and I were having a conversation on the set with some other people and uh, that turned out to be actually the germ of his decision to start writing these books. I was also fortunate enough to know uh, one of the historians on the set, a fellow by the name of Alan Huffines. I've known him since he was 16, and he's now a colonel in the United States Army, which I guess says something of my age, because I thought he was a punk kid when I met him. But he's a fine historian. He and... Uh, he and the, his his fellow historian Steve Harden are both top-notch Texas historians. They really know their Texas history. And uh, they had a great deal of input, which is surprising. Most films, they have a historian on set who tells them what the reality is, and the director says, okay, that's nice, moving on. <laughs> 
and they do it how they want. In this film, the director seem, and writers and whatnot seem to have actually paid attention because it's pretty darn well done. The, uh, the cavalry part that I was involved in, uh, we had... Uh, well, we were dressed right, among other things. Dressed right, armed right. Um, it was kind of fun when I showed up to the to the costume shop. They were they were going to put me in some kind of strange outfit, and I said, "Would it be possible for me to wear those shoes and maybe have some trousers with the stirrups underneath the Sh- shoes instead of riding boots?" Right, shoes instead of riding because everybody wants riding boots. Yeah. yeah. And I said, maybe the stirrups under the, you know, the hem of the, the pant legs to keep them down under the, you know, shoes. And they went, oh, yes, we can do that. And they outfitted me gorgeously. And they even said, oh, we, we, we'll get a hat out of the storage area for the principal actors. You need a good hat. So because I actually knew a little bit about the costuming and asked specifically, they said, oh, we'll take care of you. So they really knew what they were doing. I was very impressed with the costuming people. They did a great job. The, um, the history that they portrayed, as far as I can tell, is pretty darn good. I'm sure there's details in there that, well, that Alan and Steve and various other people could poke holes at and say, well, this wasn't right, that wasn't right, this wasn't... But overall, they did a really, really good job, and it was sympathetic both to the Texans and to the Mexicans, which I appreciate because it's one of these these clashes, not of just of empire, but clashes of culture, in which... Now, Santa Ana was a bad guy, but there's still a lot of right and wrong on both sides. And I think they portray that fairly well. Now, one thing I also have to throw in just as a, a nice personal little plug is that in the historian's track, if you watch the film with the historian's track where they're doing a voiceover talking oh, about the commentary, track. commentary, yes, the historian's commentary, just before the Battle of San Jacinto, San Jacinto the historians actually talk about me by name, which I almost fell off my chair when I was listening to this because, oh, because I wasn't really there all that long, but they gave me credit for, I think they were trying to give me credit for a lot of the stuff I'd done in the past and hadn't really gotten any recognition for. So It was a nice shout out. It was very nice and I really appreciated it, which is why I'm going to say, Alan and Steve, if you guys are listening to this, thank you very much. That really made my day and Obviously, I'm still very proud of that. So, you guys rock. So, how would you rate, on a scale of 1 to 10, this movie, just as a, as a general film? It's a general film. It, it, it's a good action flick. It's a good shoot-em-up. Uh, it's, it's up there with, you know, 9, 8, 9, 10, somewhere in there. Okay. And as far as you've already said, but on a scale of 1 to 10, historical accuracy? It's probably a 9. Okay. Somewhere in there. It's it, it's really, really well done. I hesitate to give anything a 10 because I can always find flaws. Yeah. But it's really good. Yeah, find me the perfect 10 somewhere. I don't think it exists. And I would agree with your voting. I'd give it, you know, an 8 or 9 as a general film. It's, it's It really is a washable, interesting story. It's a, it's a character story about um, about about the principal, the leads, about um, Crockett and, and all those guys. and. And but it's historically, I remember it's been a few years since I actually sat down and watched it. But I remember it really blew me away about 
how it got the history right. So this is available on Netflix, although it's not streaming right now as we record this, but it is available to get, and it's also, um, you can buy it on Amazon, and I'm guessing your local library is going to have a copy of it. It was it got a pretty wide release. So. And I highly recommend getting the DVD because then you can watch the historian's commentary, <laughs> listen to the historian's commentary. So <laughs> then you can find out what is actually wrong with it. Right. So that's that's the Alamo, the 2004 Alamo movie uh, directed by John Lee Hancock. History lives again. So today's main topic, since our news segment touched upon this, is going to be the formation of the United States and Canada and how they interact, how some of our... Um, politics there's 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 similarities and there's interaction and there's um, uh, sympathies and there's all kinds of, of interactions going on between the US and Canada so we have sort of a, a very much a tied history and a tied future so originally uh, the United States was formed under the Articles of Confederation in 1776 there's 13 independent countries under an umbrella of a federal government. This was found to be not a completely workable situation, so the uh, article, Articles of Confederation were replaced by the United States Constitution uh, in 1789. One of the mechanisms that the U.S. Constitution has within it is how to bring in a new state into this federation. What it doesn't really talk about is how to bring in new territories. New states like Tennessee and Kentucky and Ohio and Indiana and stuff, those were fairly straightforward. However, when between some threats and some uh, just a wild bargain that was offered to us, the United States was able to acquire from France the Louisiana Territory uh, it was an enormous bargain and probably completely unconstitutional, but it was too good a deal to pass up. We increased our size. We almost doubled the size of territory of the United States with this. But there were a lot of different ways of bringing in new territories into the United States. Other, um, other examples of threat and purchase uh, were Louisiana, pardon me, besides Louisiana, were Florida in 1819 with the, um, with the um, Adams-Onise Treaty, but also the Gadsden Purchase uh, of what's the little bottom part of modern-day Arizona, which turned out to have the proper passes and territories and whatnot that was necessary for the Southern Pacific Railroad. We hadn't included that when we took a big chunk of Mexico in the Mexican-American War, so we bought it later from them in 1853. Uh, I'm sure Mexico decided it was a lot easier to sell it to us and be done with it than try to fight it over it again. Uh, but Alaska is another good example of purchase of territory, and that was purchased in 1867. The reason that we wanted to buy it was we wanted to keep Britain from having all of the northern tier of the North American continent. The reason the Russians wanted to sell it to us was they no longer needed it. It is becoming far away and too expensive. 
and they didn't want the British to have it. Furthermore, the United States and Russia from the Civil War onwards up until 1945 actually had a very close relationship. We weren't exactly allies, but we were uh, we had a certain entente, we had a certain understanding, we had agreements. We never fought on opposite sides of a war. And so the there was um, military aid back, well, information back and forth. The Russian uh, army, the Tsarist army from eight, the 1870s through the 1890s was armed with rifles and pistols made in New England. So there was a great deal of interaction. And so it was an obvious choice for the Russians. When they wanted to get rid of Alaska, they were going to sell it to us. Now, there was also war. That was another way that we went about acquiring territory. And when the President of the United States, James K. Polk, decided he wanted California, that was part of his, uh, his election campaign uh, promise, he wanted San Francisco Bay, so he started a war with Mexico to take it. And we basically took, well, not quite half of Mexico, and we added another third to the size of the United States with the addition of New Mexico, Arizona, California, Utah, and a big chunk of Colorado as well. We also have increased the size of our country by annexation. Uh, we annexed the independent nation of Texas, at their request in 1845. And we also annexed the independent nation of Hawaii uh, in 1898. One of the problems with this, though, is that there was a coup d'etat in 1893, fomented, among others, by the American ambassador that overthrew the Hawaiian monarchy. They asked for annexation immediately, uh, President Grover Cleveland, who was actually a friend of the Queen of Hawaii, said, "No, you're not. We're not annexing Hawaii. We're not going to. We're not going to support this." And he recalled his ambassador and whatnot, and basically tried to undo the whole thing. Well, it was too late for that. But in 1898, the McKinley administration was much, much more interested in and more sympathetic to expanding American interests abroad. Well, we took Cuba and the Philippines. We took. <laughs> Uh, Puerto Rico and uh, Guam and so it was part and parcel of the McKinley administration to do that uh, we also expanded by way of just treaty and the Oregon territory question was settled by treaty with uh, Great Britain in 1846 by which the United States got the present day states of Oregon, Washington and Idaho and Great Britain got British Columbia. Uh, very peacefully. That was one of the few <laughs> few times we actually had all kinds of peace breaking out between our, us and, uh, and Britain. Canada has a somewhat different experience. Canada was first settled by the French in the present-day province of Quebec. Uh, it was taken by Great Britain during the Seven Years' War, which, even though the French occupation of Canada pretty much paralleled the American development of the our colonies, the English colonies, in fact, Quebec was settled only a year after Jamestown was founded in 1607. Uh, Quebec was founded in 1608. But um, 
with the English occupation or conquest of French Canada, France, New France became British North America. And that led to a, you would think it would be, have at this point a very similar history to the United States, but of course during the American War for Independence, the American Revolution, that changed dramatically. Uh, we tried several times to convince the Canadians by force to join us. They wanted nothing to do with it. They remained loyal to Great Britain. And in fact, a large number of American loyalists moved from the English colonies, which are now the 13 American states, to what is now Canada. Lots of them moved to New Brunswick, and another large portion of them moved to present-day Ontario, which was called Upper Canada at the time. Uh, Western Canada was primarily administered by the Hudson's Bay Company. And, uh, in fact, Hudson's Bay Company, even though their charter said it was only able to administer the waters flowing into Hudson's Bay, they decided the Arctic was pretty close to that, and then the Pacific Ocean was sort of attached. So they had um, they had a lot of um, influence, <laughs> administrative power throughout all of Western Canada, even down so far as part of California. They had their uh, they had a post in San Francisco, present-day San Francisco, but they also, which was part of Mexico at the time. But their primary fort on the West Coast, their factory, if you will, was at Fort Vancouver, which is present-day Vancouver, Washington, on the Columbia River. When Americans started pouring into the Oregon Territory, the Hudson's Bay Company could see the writing on the wall, and they moved operations to Fort Victoria, which is present-day Victoria, British Columbia on Vancouver Island. Just like the United States, though, the what is now called flyover country was sort of walkover country or rideover country. There wasn't a whole lot going on in the great interiors of both the United States and Canada for many, many years. However, eventually people filled in through various uh, migrations and immigrations. Interestingly enough, the Canadian prairies had a large influx of Russians and Ukrainians who actually knew something about farming in steppe lands, i.e. the prairies, and they didn't suffer nearly as badly during the, like the Dust Bowl of the Great Depression as the American farmers did because they had better techniques. And once those techniques flowed south, the American farmers could adopt some of those that things drastically improved in the American prairie uh, territories. Um, not, not to say that the, this was all done without, um, without any challenges, without violence. Um, there was what was called the Pig War between the United States and, and Great Britain in 1859, where there was a question as to what exactly was the boundary between the United States and Great Britain was it it was the 49th parallel up to Admiralty Inlet and we knew that it was down the middle of the Straits of Juan de Fuca between the Olympic Peninsula of Washington and Vancouver Island but what was it in the islands and the British administration of uh, 
of Governor James, Sir James Douglas thought that it was on one side of San Juan Island. We thought it was on the other side of San Juan Island. And when somebody shot a pig that belonged to Hudson's Bay Company, uh, hilarity ensued. Luckily, there wasn't a war because as, as the American general in command of the U.S. Army, Winfield Scott, said, it would be a great tragedy should two great nations go to war over a goddamn pig. Therefore, the powers that be decided that even though the lower end politicians and soldiers wanted a war, it wasn't worth it. There were other issues that Canada had to deal with, such as the Riel Rebellion and the Northwest Rebellion. Northwest Rebellion was 1870, and the Riel Rebellion was 1885, and these dealt mostly with Indian or First Nations rights and how they were being shunted aside by the, uh, by the um, settlers. And uh, although Canada and Great Britain in British North America have been a great deal more responsive to First Nations rights and First Nations or Indian concerns than the United States has been, that doesn't mean that they've got a clean record. There's been plenty of, of nastiness going on uh, on their part as well. Now, <clears throat> In 1867, the uh, the Dominion of Canada was recognized, was announced, recognized by Great Britain, and Canada became nominally independent. They still had a royal governor, but otherwise independent. And um, what's funny about that, though, is that the province of Newfoundland didn't actually become part of Canada until 1947. So... Yeah, we think of Canada as being, well, Canada, all this big chunk of North America, but it didn't include Newfoundland <laughs> until 1947. It's now part of Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, as I recall. They have one province because neither one has enough people in it. The Maritimes are also dealing with the problem of uh, demographics, having low population uh, growth, uh, or even replacement for that matter. So now I'd like to talk a little bit about centralization of political power versus entropy, which, of course, is the natural tendency for things to fall apart if there isn't a great deal of energy put into them. Uh, presently, there's a lot of energy in the form of tax dollars that is being put into the central governments of both Ottawa and Washington, D.C., uh, but unfortunately, a lot of that is borrowed money, and we're having to deal with economic stagnation right now and possibly economic retreat and that may not be enough to keep power centralized in these uh, these two areas the uh, the centralized power structures also have a strong tendency to ignore the different needs and desires for far-flung provinces of an empire and both Canada and the United States, by any real normal definition, have to be defined as empires. They're huge. Now, Canada has to deal with this general disenfranchisement uh, in Quebec. They're very disenchanted with the present political structure, and the Francophones, in other words, French speakers, feel a tremendous amount of disrespect against them by the Anglophones or Anglo, Ang English speakers. Um, they feel that 
there is a great deal of political, economic, and cultural power that is being used against them. Never know mind. Well, we won't get into the politics of that. But the um, they not only have to deal with it from the rest of Canada, but also from this overwhelming American culture that swamps them at every turn. So uh, this is just something that Canada has to deal with in general is the American uh, megalith next door that has, you know, 20 times their population. One of the recent, well, fairly recent attempts by the Francophones in Quebec to gain at least a modicum of independence was what was called the Lake Meech Accord or Meech Lake Accord uh, that was uh, nailed together, hammered out by um, uh, Prime Minister Mulroney some years ago, uh, which recognized the Francophone culture as being unique and therefore being deserving of special considerations. It was torpedoed pretty quickly by the First Nations who said, wait a minute, we have a completely unique culture too. Lots of them. Why don't we get special consideration? You give them special consideration, you give us special consideration. And, well, you can't pay everybody off, so (laughs) that tanked that. But I think that the reason, as we said in the earlier segment, that the Quebecois are not able to round up enough votes for actual independence is money. They are in some ways the steward or under the stewardship of the rest of Canada. Uh, They're being paid to stick around by the rest of Canada. If they leave, well, they don't get the money, just like Scotland uh, couldn't afford independence. Another reason that the Quebecois have money issues is, as I believe I mentioned earlier, the First Nations in northern Quebec own the land upon which all the hydroelectric power is made. And therefore, Quebec would not only have no money coming in from the rest of Canada, they wouldn't have any power coming in from the rest of, from their own northern provinces or nor- northern section either. So that right there suggests that Quebec would probably do poorly on its own. This leads into another couple of questions, and that is back to entropy. The United States already experienced its own first attempt at entropy with, uh, with the American Civil War, or the Second War for Independence, or no, that was War of 1812, the Southern War for Independence, in which the southern sector of the United States tried to break away from the Union and were forcibly not allowed to do so. It was only a few years later that Canada became its own united country. Uh, it really wasn't until 1917 with World War I that Canada really got a feeling of nationhood, however. But that is waning a little bit, I think. Um, you have lots and lots of issues leading to entropy. One of them is that Alberta, which previously was sort of just out there, the plains of Alberta, just cowboy country, has turned first to a major, major wheat producing section and now is 
the primary energy producing sector of Canada. They have enormous oil fields, natural gas, coal, you name it. So Alberta is a very, very wealthy province right now. And as Ontario, which was the heartland of Canada, as it starts losing its economic vitality, it's being replaced by Alberta. In fact, most of the leadership in Ottawa right now come from from Alberta. If Alberta chooses to leave the Union, the Dominion of Canada, the Confederation, they're probably going to take British Columbia with them. British Columbia has many times said, well, if Quebec leaves, we're leaving too. Now, the immediate question would be, oh, well, will they join the United States? Well, the United States would love to have them. But that begs the question, can the United States do that? I don't mean legally. I mean just fundamentally, do we have the ability to absorb them? Yeah, I think so. But there's also entropy working against the United States at the moment, too. You have separatists or secessionists within the United States, such as Texas. There's a strong independence movie, movie movement in Texas um, to reestablish the Republic of Texas. It was independent once, they could do it again, and they'd be happy to, at least a large segment would be. Um, there's a, a, a strong movement within certainly the western states to reinforce and to, to uh, enforce their Tenth Amendment rights as, as much more independent states rather than mere political satrapies ruled from Washington, D.C. Um, I think there's the very good fear that should be on the part of people in D.C. that if Alberta and British Columbia were to separate, then so would Washington, Oregon, and, and uh, Idaho, maybe even Alaska, say, yeah, we'll just form our own confederation of Cascadia. And the heck with you guys. We're tired of your policies that do nothing but suck our blood and treasure and and young men to go off and fight these imperial wars that, that are stupid. Um, California would be happy to go its own way. It's already, what, the seventh largest in, uh, economy in the world. Um, but who knows? Maybe... There might be a confederation of states of the southwestern United States, of Arizona, New Mexico, California, and Nevada, with the northern states of Mexico, of Sinaloa, uh, Sonora, and, and Baja California. Now, I've seen things of people saying, oh, that's going to be Azatlan, and Mexico is going to take over. Now, that's ridiculous. Mexico City couldn't do anything. But, but, there's a large... Hispanic population in all of those states and there's certainly a dislike I think there's a strong dislike among the Hispanic population for Mexico City there is among the Anglo population for Washington DC that they may decide let's just go our own way we can do just fine without these people sucking our blood anymore so that sort of begs the question as to would breaking apart Canada result in the wholesale breaking up of states and provinces in the United States and Mexico as well. Um, 
could California, you know, could these states such as California or Texas make a go of it alone? I think pretty easily. They both have very large states, big populations and very rich natural resources. Or could they form small confederations of their own? I think it's a very real possibility. And unfortunately, Canada has, for the last hundred years or so, formed sort of the conscience of North America. And we could either transform the United States and Canada into one very large North American confederation, or it could break up into a whole lot of much smaller ones, which, considering population sizes and just entropy in general, is probably a whole lot more likely to happen. The biggest problem is that when people start losing power, they get stupid and I doubt if this could be attained without a certain level of violence. Uh, there's a possibility it could be done without it, and I certainly hope that if that happens, if this breakup occurs, that it is done without violence, but I doubt it would be possible. Because D.C., Mexico City, and Ottawa ain't going to let loose that easy. So the question really isn't if, but how much. There's a spot that is dear to the heart of old cowboys to once rode the Bronco. So it's a possibility, do you think it's a probability? No, I don't think it's... Well, I think that breakup at some point is a probability. Uh, there's just too much... Um, there, there's too many issues going on whereby people in, say, Washington State, where we are, have nothing in common with people in Virginia. California has nothing in common with, shall I say, Maine. Um, Montana has nothing in common with Florida. On the other hand, Washington has a huge amount in common with British Columbia. Montana has a huge amount in common with Alberta. Maine has a huge amount in common with the Maritime provinces. Uh, California has more in common with Mexico anymore uh, than it does to, to Maine, that's for sure. So, so you're starting to see the artificiality of all the borders. Exactly. And, and it just doesn't have a lot of bearing on reality anymore. Precisely, precisely. Just like we're seeing the breakup of the countries that were formed by the Versailles Treaty in 1919, 1920 in the Middle East, I think that within the next 50 years, we're going to see a breakup of the artificial uh, boundaries of the 19th century that were that formed the United, Mexico, the United States, and Canada. When people don't like change. They resist change. They do, but sometimes it's forced upon them by economics and politics. So we'll see what happens. Okay. So that ought to do it for this week's episode number seven of the history files and i hope you tune in next week to hear more of what we have to say in the meantime keep reading and read up on history the history files is brought to you by bad cat productions if you enjoy this show please visit us online at badcatshows.net where you can find show notes links and news about upcoming events 
please consider supporting our work by donating via PayPal or visiting our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash badcatshows, where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.